It's the photo that sums up the American working man. This guy is so determined to fix a burst pipe, he dives into the muddy water head first. The homeowner was, was overwhelmed at the worker's dedication. And when I walked back outside, the kid was in there. She had one question for the dedicated worker. Do you mind if I take your picture? Because my husband is never going to believe this. The photo has gone viral internationally with talk about the guy going above and beyond the call of duty. So who is the submerged worker who overnight has become a global symbol of the American can-do spirit? My job is a very dirty job. Meet Jimmy Cox. He works for a local water utility outside Fort Worth, Texas. He basically just holds your breath, and if, uh, if stuff starts going up your nose, that's too bad. Turn to your neighbor and ask him, are you that dedicated? What a privilege it is to be here this morning with you all. And uh, I always consider it a high honor to have the privilege to stand in this pulpit and uh, uh, preach the gospel to you. And I would be remiss if I didn't take a minute and thank Pastor Gary and Carol for their leadership, not only over Berean, to, but to the metro area. They are just phenomenal leaders. And Renee and I just considered it a high privilege to have the chance to sit under their tutelage. I learn something from him every day, and I consider it a privilege, and I'm grateful for him. And so let's be in prayer for them as they're uh, down in um, San Antonio, as Pastor Nathan mentioned. Also, I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment and mention my beautiful wife of 27 years and uh, love her so much. Looking forward to that. And I have family here this morning. And so just what a privilege it is to have them here. I have, there's, there's seven of us. There's, uh, there's six boys and one girl. My sister is called the Rose Amongst Thorns. And uh, my brother Jeremiah and his family is here. And my wonderful stepmom is here. And her name is Karen. She's an ordained minister. And all of her grades in college were better than mine. <laughs> and uh, I just appreciate her. She always treated me like her own. And every time I left the house, she would say, don't remember whose you are. That's what she would say to me, and I've never forgotten that. So thank you very much. We also have friends here from Ogden, and uh, this group in the row next to my wife there, they helped us. We all partnered together and started one of the most amazing youth ministries. Uh, it's one of the greatest experiences Renee and I have ever had. We love them. They're, they're part of our family as well, and we're honored that they're here to come and support what God is doing here. And uh, just excited about that. The Glow in the Dark event was an absolute amazing thing. I'm just so excited about the, uh, the touch that Berean had on the community. As you, as you probably all know, we get, we're giving away three $900 place, wooden place structures. And we had over 186, I think is the final count, 186 registrations for that. And it was one per, per household. So if you do the math, 4.2 people per household or whatever number you want to use, that's a lot of people that responded to that. And we're excited about the privilege to be able to reach out to them and have the chance to invite them to be a part of the family of God. And I want you to know that uh, we are going to steward that moment. We're going to be uh, generous and uh, love on them and just encourage them. So we're excited about what God is doing, and this morning I feel like God has given me a message that really dovetails right into uh, what's going on. There's one more thing I want to tell you about is Pastor Appreciation Month was last month. I am so honored to be a part of a church that loves their pastors so much, and I've been here a year and a half, so that's got to be 
God, that's in a miracle if you still love me after 18 months, right? So, uh, but there was one special thing that I received that I wanted to show you. It's up here on the screen. This is the, the back and the front of a thank you card I got from a, a young girl in, uh, down in the girls' ministries program. And this just touched my heart that she took. And it's interesting because she really, really knows who I am. So if you look in the inside, you really get a good glimpse of this. Let's look at that next slide. And um, so, so here I am. And, and it, I don't know if you can tell, this picture doesn't do it justice, but she drew hair on there and then she erased some of it because there's just too much hair up there. And then she's got some stubble on my chin for the goatee. And then she drew a stick figure of me. And if you notice, for the torso, she had to use two lines <laughs> for that. And uh, it's, it's interesting because right above my head, it says, yay, motorcycles. And if you know me at all, I love motorcycles. I, I, I got a motorcycle a few years ago. I, unfortunately, I had to sell it this fall to, to buy a truck. My wife, we commuted last year together. And carpooled and she got a job in Norwalk so I had to sell my motorcycle to buy a truck and everybody can say ah thank you thank you but this kind of is really more of a prophetic word for my wife that I should get a motorcycle right um, I don't know if that got any traction at all guys so I, I apologize if that was supposed to get more out of that but that was such a blessing uh, to receive from from a young little girl and I was so honored that the teachers down there are teaching these young kids about honor and uh, that's exciting to me that that generation is learning that. So what a privilege. Thank you so much for your hospitality. And uh, this morning I want to uh, go on a journey with you. And we need to digest a story. The story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you want to turn your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to kind of lay the foundation for this story. It's about a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah had two wives. One's name was Penina. She had children. And Hannah was the other one, and she did not have children. And the Bible says that she didn't have children because the Lord had closed her womb. And every year, this family would make a pilgrimage to Shiloh to worship and offer sacrifices to the Lord. It's a pretty significant investment. There were two presiding priests at this temple in Shiloh. One, they were the sons of Eli. One's name was Hophni and the other one was Phinehas. And Eli, becoming of old age, resided there as well with his two sons. And on the day of the sacrifice, Elkanah would give meat to his wife, Penina, and her ch children. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her. Now, our story picks up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting reading in verse 6. It said, Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair at the doorpost of the Lord's house, and in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, 
and no razor will ever be used on his head. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking you for a few things. One, I'm asking you to allow the butterflies in me to fly information and they'd be subject to the prophet. That I would get out of the way so that your spirit could speak through me. Second of all, Lord, I'm praying that your people, through the quickening of your spirit, would be a lay aside the things that so easily distract and entangle us. And that your word would land on listening ears. God, I'm asking you to not help us to not leave the way we came. Help us to be changed because we've been in your presence. And Holy Spirit, I invite you to have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have this amazing story that we're going to work together to digest. And there's some facts in this text that we're going to try to pull out to try to understand. Context is everything when we're reading scripture. So let's look at a few facts. The first fact we need to understand is that these were believers, okay? We know this because of where they were from. First of all, Elkina was a Levite, the text tells us. And they were the priestly tribe. And they had to do with the things that mattered in ministering unto the Lord. So they were raised in this environment that was pursuing God. Second of all, they made an annual pilgrimage to make sacrifices. This was a big deal. This wasn't a group of friends making a decision to drive to the west side to go to the mall today. Okay? This would take four to six months of planning to get ready to go on this pilgrimage, and they did this annually. So there's a tremendous amount of dedication involved in making the decision to go on this pilgrimage. Third, the text tells us that they were worshipers of the Lord. You don't worship the Lord if you don't love the Lord. Amen? And fourth, we see that Hannah, in her distress, that she turned to the Lord. Okay? How many of you have ever been in a moment of distress and you turned unto the Lord? Amen. Well, that's a reflection of our passion to serve him and our dedication to him. The takeaway here is that understanding that this story is related to the life of believers plays a large role in how and who we apply this text to. You see, if this text is writing about the life of believers, there's information in it that we as believers can take out of it. Amen? So let's continue our journey. The second fact we need to identify is that there was opposition. There was opposition. Can I tell you that in your ministry, there will be opposition? If you pursue the Lord, there will be opposition. And this is interesting in this text because we see jealousy as an opposition. Now, most of the time when we look at this text, we think that Hannah was jealous because uh, Penina or Penina or however you want to pronounce that, I've listened to four different pronunciations on Google and all of them were different. So you're on your own on this one. But for some reason, we interpret the text that Hannah was jealous of Penina because Hannah didn't have children and Penina did. But the fact was that Penina was the one that was jealous. She would come to Hannah and she would provoke her because she didn't have kids. And she was provoking her because she saw that Elkanah loved Hannah. He had a tremendous amount of passion and affection for, Penina, for uh, Hannah. And that's interesting when we understand that because... Hannah had found favor with her Lord, little L. Okay? So this produced some opposition in Hannah's life because she had found favor with her husband. Don't go home and make your wife call you Lord, okay? Don't tell him I told you to do that. But we see in this text, we see the use of the word Lord, little L, as in uh, their husband, and we see the word 
Lord with a capital L, which is referring to our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which is very significant in this story as we digest it. So we have to understand here that God's purpose and his will in our life will sometimes encounter opposition, okay? The third thing is, is that Hannah turned to God. It says in verse 10 that in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord. Hannah's petition was found from her desperate faith. And sometimes desperation and hardship turns us back to our faith. She desired to do what was, she was called to do. And for some of this, that's a stretch, okay? So I want to digest this for just a minute. Hannah had an unquenchable passion to be a mom. It's very important that we understand this principle in this text. She had a passion to be a mom. And oftentimes our calling is in direct alignment with our godly passions. Okay? I'm not referring to your fleshly desires. There's a big difference between godly passions and fleshly desires. One leads us towards God. The other one leads us away from God. Does that make sense? But we have to understand that our passions line up with our gifts, and our gifts are from God. So when we talk about people who have dedicated their lives to Jesus, all this comes into play. All of this is significant. The takeaway here is that you need to know this morning that when you pursue your godly passions, God will always make a way. Somebody should say amen there. We serve a God that will always make a way. If you are walking toward him and you are fulfilling the will of God in your life, he will always make a way. You can take that to the bank. Not only does his word declare it, but my life has experienced that. And I'm thankful. I'm grateful that he always makes a way. Number four, Hannah made a vow. Verse 11 said she made a vow and said this, Lord Almighty, if you will look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant but give her a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. This morning, I want to take a minute and talk to you a little, about, a little bit about this notion of not placing a razor to his head. You see, this was directly related to a principle or an ideal in Scripture that we call a Nazarite vow. This largely had nothing to do with people from Nazareth had nothing to do with people that were called Nazarenes, but it did come out of this notion of being a Nazarite. Its root word is found in the word Nazir, which means to be consecrated or set aside for the Lord for works of service. And there's several people in Scripture that we see do this. Just a few of them were, we see in Acts 18 that the Apostle Paul participated in a vow, and that his vow was for a period of time, and we see in Acts 18 that he's cutting his hair after finishing that vow, Acts 18, 18. We also see that John the Baptist and Luke had participated in a vow like this. And, of course, one of the most famous ones, and there's lots of others, but one of the most famous ones is Samson. We see that Samson participated in a vow. A few more of these characteristics of this vow is that a, a Nazarite vow, they were not allowed to participate in wine or fermented pro products. In fact, they were so serious about this that a Nazarite person that accepted a Nazarite vow was never allowed to eat anything that was associated with grapes because they didn't want to take any chance, just absolutely no option possible that their judgment would be made altered while they were serving the Lord, while they were set aside for their works of service. Does that make sense? The second thing we see in here is that no razor would touch their head. They were never to cut their hair and this, this became a, a symbolic of the crown of the Lord to the dedication of God. 
And, and it represented when you saw people back then that was letting their hair grow in this nature, that it was pretty common, it was pretty, pretty well determined that they were under a Nazarite vow. And the third thing was that they weren't allowed to touch dead bodies. That's kind of interesting. But if we take the time to understand the process of being ceremonial clean before the Lord in the Old Testament, we see that when people were found unclean, like an example, if they touched a dead body, that they would go outside of the camp. They would spend seven days out there going through a process of ceremonial cleansing. It's almost like uh, they weren't being punished, but they were set on the bench for a while while they became clean again so that they could get back into service. Does that make sense? So, so that's why these people that made this Nazarite vow weren't allowed to touch dead bodies, okay? And so um, that's a pretty significant list of things that God is pointing out. And if you want to learn more about that, you can study the Nazarite vow in the book of Numbers. Chapter 6 talks a lot about the details of that. Oftentimes this vow was for a season of time, or sometimes it was for a lifelong dedication, one of the things I've learned, and we need to pause here and have a conversation for just a second. All of you have an assignment. Everyone in this room has a task that God has called you to. Maybe you haven't figured that out yet. That's okay. We're here to help you. Some people have a call of God to lifelong ministry. I remember the day that Renee and I heard the voice. I remember like it was yesterday. In fact, my dad, who was probably one of the greatest stewards of the Word of God, he would spend large portions of his day seeking and studying the Word of God. He, he told me for years that he saw the call of God in my life, and I pretty much told him he was crazy. Uh, I, I didn't want any part of it. In fact, when Renee and I met and we were talking about getting married, she said, you're not planning on going into ministry, are you? I said, no, no way. I'm not. Not going to have anything to do with it. <laughs> Twenty years later... But I remember the day that we heard the voice of God. We'd gone on a missions trip, and the Lord just clearly spoke to us, and we knew that he was setting ourselves aside for a lifelong journey of ministry, vocational ministry. So, so the, the call, the, the task, the assignment that he had given me was to do what I'm doing now. And the first thing I realized I needed to do was go tell my dad. So I went out to his house, and he was on a bulldozer. I remember yesterday, and my, my brother can attest to this, he taught us when you walk up to someone on a bulldozer, you walk where they can see and you throw rocks at them. So I did. I picked up rocks. I get to throw rocks at my dad. He gave me permission. This is awesome. So I'm throwing rocks at the bulldozer. And he heard it, heard the rocks clanking on the side of it. So he looked over, he got down, he came over. I'm talking to him. He says, what's going on? I said, well, I've got some good news I need to tell you. He says, what's that? And I said, I'm going into full-time ministry. And you know what he said to me? He said, don't go what? He said, don't do it. It's not worth it. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, don't, just don't even try. Just don't do it. You got a good job. Your wife has a job. Just don't even do it. Just, just stay where you're at. By now I'm getting upset. He gave me those genetics, by the way. And so I'm getting upset. I'm like, what are you talking about? You've been telling me I have a call on a God in my life for years. And now you're sitting there saying not to do it. He said, yeah, it's not worth it. Don't do it. And I'm like, this is insane. I don't know what he's talking about. And I was getting furious. And I was just getting ready to stomp off. And he grabbed me by the shoulders. He says, listen. He says, if I can convince you not to do it, it's not God. But if when you wake up in the morning 
and the only thing you can do is pursue his call, then do it. Mm. 20 years later, my wife and I, from time to time, we find ourselves taking inventory of the call of God on our life. And I want you to know it's been difficult, but there's no regrets. There's no regrets. My wife and I have chosen to pursue a lifelong commitment to setting ourselves aside for the things of the Lord. In Hannah's pledge to God, we see that she was placing Samuel under this Nazarite vow to dedicate him to the house of God, to do the Lord's work. This was a lifelong vow. And this morning, I want you to take away this principle. To do the work of the Lord is more better. To do the work of the Lord is more better. That's bad enough grammar you should remember. it. <laughs> All of you have an assignment. He will always provide. When you get yourself lined up with that caller God, he will always provide. And we see Hannah sitting her son in the house of the Lord and dedicated him to this moment. She put him, submitted him to this Nazarite vow. She took him back after he was weaned and gave him to the house of the Lord and he was raised by Eli. What an amazing story. If you get time this week, read uh, 1 Samuel 1 and 2 Samuel. Read both of those books. It's an amazing story of how God has used Samuel. But as we study this portion of text, we find ourselves needing to truly understand what the word consecration means. The characters of this vow would identify the person making the vow that they were consecrating themselves unto the Lord for works of service. And we see some other examples of this in Scripture. Joshua uh, chapter 3, verse 5 Joshua heard from the Lord and he came to the people and he said this. He said to go and consecrate yourselves for in the morning, for tomorrow the Lord will do mighty things in your midst. He said to consecrate yourselves. And so the people that were obedient, they went and they cleansed themselves on the outside and they searched their hearts on the inside. Because they wanted God to be able to do great things in their midst. The second example, 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common purposes. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. That's a great example of a group of people that have chosen to set themselves aside for works of service. And it goes on to say this, flee the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord of, of a pure heart. Here Paul is writing to believers and challenging them to consecrate themselves so that they will not fall to the lies of false teachers. And of course in this example, we have to find ourselves, when we talk about 
Christian, we have to find ourselves talking about Samson. Here we have a judge in the New Testament found in the book of Judges. And there's some characteristics we know about Samson. Number one, he had taken a Nazarite vow. He was a judge used by God, and he had taken this vow. He had been set aside, he had been consecrated for works of service unto the Lord. But he fell to the temptation that life offers, and he lost his power all over the price of a bad haircut. Look what was given to him. Look what he gave up. If we get back to our story of Hannah and her baby Samuel, we can find a few things. First of all, Samuel 128 says this. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Hannah's desperate faith led her to obedient faith. In her desperation, she cried and asked God to give her a son. The miracle here isn't that he gave her a son. The miracle is that he opened her womb. Later on in 1 Samuel, we see that she actually had five children. But her desperate faith, God met. She responded with obedient faith and gave her son to the Lord. 1 Samuel 1.11, it says this, And she made a vow. If you'll only look on me in my misery. Lord, if you'll only remember me. Don't forget your servant. Give me a son. If you'll do that, I'll dedicate him to your work for life. And no razor will touch his head. Here's a few things we know about Samuel. Samuel is referred to as the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Samuel listened to God. Samuel anointed both Saul and David for the roles as king of Israel. That's a big deal. Samuel was from the tribe of Levi. Samuel had taken a Nazarite vow. Samuel was known as a man of prayer. Samuel served the Lord faithfully. And Samuel never, never cut his hair. He accepted the call. He dedicated his life. And he remained faithful. Pastor Nathan's on his way up. As he comes, I'm going to ask you a question. There's a few things I've learned over two decades of ministry. The first one is this. Lots of people want Jesus as their Savior, but fewer follow him as their Lord. Pastor Evan, what's the difference? Well, it has to do something with choosing to embrace the whole counsel of God. You know, this thing called his word. has authority in our lives. As, as ministers in Bible college, one of the very first we think, things we learn is 
that this is the final rule of faith and conduct in the life of a believer. If it says we should do it, we do it. If it tells us not to, we don't. One of the 12, or one of 12, one of the 10 commandments is not to create any graven images. You know what I think one of the greatest temptations of the church today is? I think it's that because rather than spending time in the word, we're defining God as we want him to be rather than reading his word and understand who he is. God's asking us this morning to let him be Lord. I've shared this ideal with the young adults here at Berean several times, and uh, most of you probably know what a shadow box is. It's an old printer's rack you hang on the wall and you put little collectibles in it. Everyone know what that is? If you don't, Google it. My mother-in-law has a shadow box hanging on her wall. For decades, when Renee and I traveled, we would buy a little pewter figurine wherever we were, and when we got back, we'd give it to her, and she would put it in one of those little cubby holes in her, on her wall. And uh, every time I'd go there, I would look at that. And it probably meant more to me than it did to her, because for me, it represented her giving me another space in her life. She was letting me in a little more and a little more every time. And that shadow box reminds me a lot of my heart and my relationship with Jesus. You see, there's little cubby holes in my heart, if you'll permit me the illustration. And when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, he filled the voids. He became my Savior. But this process of sanctification is from time to time he'll come to that shadow box of my heart and he'll pull a piece out and it's still still maybe uh, anxiety or fear or worries or stress or, or, or poorly perceived ideals of how things should be. Whatever they are, are in your life, they're different in mine. But he'll pull one of those out and he'll say, Eben, would you let me work on this in you? Because if you do, I can take some more of the world out and put more of me in you. But he's a gentleman. And sometimes I'm just not ready. I say, no, Lord, I'm not. I don't know if I can do that. It's, it's okay. We'll, we'll come back to that later. He'll grab a different one. How about this one? Can I have this one? I'll say, yes, Lord. You can have that. I'm giving that to you. more of him less of me that's the journey we're on together but I believe this morning with all my heart that he is calling us to set ourselves aside to be people that are dedicated to the presence of God here's what I know the Bible calls our God a consuming fire and there's something that happens when you get in the presence of a living God. He's like a silversmith. He heats you up enough that it burns away the chaff. 
And that what remains is more pure than it was before it went in. Everyone here has an assignment. God is here right now. Paul said this. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it were saved because of that. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. This is the words of a man who experienced the presence of a living God and dedicated his life to his service. The litmus test for consecration is this. Are you teachable? Are you consistent in your devotion? Are your priorities in your life godly? Can you clearly define what your ministry is? If I came up to you this morning, I said, what's your assignment? Can you tell me what it is? Does your ministry dictate your schedule or does life dictate your schedule? Here's something else I've learned over 20 years of ministry. In life, there are consumers and there are investors. Every investor I've ever met in the church was setting themselves aside for works of service. Listen to me closely. Those people are marked by their pursuit. I'm not asking you to cut your hair today. I'm not asking you to let it grow out. But I am asking you to make a commitment. A commitment to be an investor. A commitment to deepen your journey. A commitment to reach deep inside of you and say, I have more to give to the Lord, and this is my reasonable act of service. I believe with all my heart that the message that God's called me to speak, He's gone before me and He's been speaking to you already about this topic. And so this morning, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to that voice.
this is a moment of boldness. I'm not going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes. But here's what I know. This is a safe place. Tell the young adults this all the time. This is a safe place to be wrong. And everyone's wrong about something. Some of you are just itching to respond because the Lord is doing something in your heart right now. There's a few things you need to know before you respond. The person next to you either needs to respond like you or they've made that decision and they're cheering your name right now. I got here at 6.30 this morning. I spent time in prayer asking God to meet us here. And he's faithful. And when I ask you to reply, I'm just going to ask you to stand up. Just take a step of boldness and say, yes, I'm willing to commit to this thing. I'm willing to rearrange my schedule so that he can be Lord and he can lead and guide me down paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's no longer about me. It's about him. I'm not challenging your salvation. I'm encouraging dedication. Here's why. Staff meets every Tuesday here at Moran. They're people of prayer. and What a privilege it is to be on staff here. But I, all of us feel like something amazing is just, is just about to happen. God is birthing something in this church and that it's going to be identified by souls. That's why. Reach the lost, disciple the believer. Reach the lost, disciple the believer. That's why we're here. And God is giving you an opportunity to reschedule some things this morning so that you can be a major part of that. Father, we... this room is charged with your presence. I'm asking that in these moments, we're not in a hurry, Lord, in these moments that your spirit would just, just tug on hearts. Help them to see that the, what's next is beautiful. Just love on them right now in this moment. Let's just be still before him for just a second. Let him speak to us. here this morning and you feel like God is challenging you 
to set yourself aside for him, I want you to stand up right now. Don't let fear or intimidation cause you to not stand. Today's the day. still sitting, I'm going to ask you to find someone near you that's standing and just gather around them. We're going to pray for them. We're going to pray three things. Go ahead and find someone next to you. We're going to pray three things. One, we're going to pray that as they step out in this commitment to the Lord, that uh, we're going to rebuke the enemy. He just, he's a punk, man. That's my sermon right here. We're going to rebuke the enemy that tries to distract us, okay? second thing we're going to do is we're going to ask for boldness, that they would just uh, remain strong in the Lord. Because right now you have to understand that the sovereign God of the universe has a mantle in his hand. He's about to place it in your hand. You just got to understand that. What a privilege we have. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name. Father, I rebuke Satan that tells the lies and the deception that tries to convince us that uh, we're not worthy or you're not calling us. It's just not true. We find our worth in Jesus Christ, our salvation. So I just pray that a, a boldness would rise up in them that's founded in faith, desperate faith. Strengthen them, Lord. Father, I pray that you would make their crooked path straight as they walk for you. Don't let things ahead of them cause them to stumble. Surround them with people that will walk with them and hold them accountable and spur them on to works of service for your glory that more might know you. It's like Paul said, I preach Christ in him crucified. I just speak hope and life. Lord, as you place that mantle in their hand, I pray that they would grab it and never look back. Never look back.
Father, as the body of Christ, we commit this moment to you. I believe with all my heart that this, this is a moment in time where in the future we'll look back on and say, well, look what the Lord has done. Hmm. You have met us here. And Lord, as we go, I pray for solemn resolve. Jesus' name.